Dude, Jay, I still can't believe you got to write an actual canonical X-book. I know, right? I am so excited that it's about Cyclops' youth. It's about time someone reconciled all the conflicting versions of Scott's childhood. Oh, oh, I didn't do that, Miles. But the book is set at Sinister's Orphanage, right? Most of it, yeah. Then how did you deal with all the continuity? Well, I spent weeks just exhaustively going through every version of the orphanage in Scott's childhood that's existed in canon. Good, good. And then ignored the parts that got in my way. What?! I'm Jay Edidin. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 308 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And welcome to a unique kind of episode. We've had the two of us be the only people on the show many, many times before. We've done interviews with creators many, many times before. And this is a first intersection of those two things, at least when it comes to writing X-Comics, because, Jay, you wrote an X-Comic. Miles, are we ever really alone on the show? Well, oh, that's true, that's true. I mean, there are our listeners who are going to hear it later. There are the spirits of the unquiet dead surrounding us and howling their terrifying howls. But, you know, aside from that. I mean, I'd, li- I'd like to think that every time I talk about the X-Men, I'm haunted by the, the forgotten clones of them running around in deep space. Mm, never forget, never forget. But those clones, unless you were very subtle about it, are not the topic of the comic you wrote. So let's talk about X-Men Marvel Snapshots number one, which, as this episode goes live, will have come out a few days ago on September 16th. It's true. I have not seen physical copies yet, but I have been assured that they do at least theoretically exist in reality. So hopefully they will have been distributed by the time this episode comes out. Um, we're, we're recording, you know, a about half a week ahead, or almost a week ahead. Well, uh, if the issue just spontaneously detonates or burns down with everything else in Oregon right now, which is scary, then I will treasure that review PDF that you sent me. Yeah, what the hell, man? Are, are you on fire? Are you okay? Uh, not at the moment, but by the time the episode goes live, who can say? But speaking of Acts of God, this is not the first official Marvel work that you've done. That is true. This is, in fact, officially the the second. This is the first Marvel comic that I've done, but I I did co-write Thor Metal Gods, which is an audio-first novel for Serial Box, which was an awful lot of fun. That came out last year, technically. A combination of last year and this year. Um, We can link to that in the visual companion. It It is different and fun, and it involves a lot more writers. It was really, really fun. I enjoyed the hell out of that. And Jay, I also enjoyed the hell out of this Cyclops one shot. Like, I mentioned this right after I read the review copy, but obviously I'm biased. I mean, I'm a big fan of you and of the way you look at the X-Men. I mean, look, I'm actually inclined to take you at your word here more than I would usually be, because while on one hand you are the enthusiasm guy on this show, on the other hand I know from years of experience that you've pretty much never hesitated in telling me if there's something that you don't like about something I've written, so... I mean, I try to do it nicely, no, and I appreciate it, but I think the precedent of this is is a level of, of dialogic critique that that I think maybe you're it, historically at least more more willing to engage with with you know someone you know well than with someone whose whose stuff you're kind of speculating about. Uh, that's probably very true. 
But okay, so here's my official critique of X-Men Marvel Snapshots number one. It is fucking great. It is one of the best comics I have read in a long time. And honestly, I think this may be my single most definitive Cyclops issue. Jay, you seriously knocked it out of the park with this comic. And I am so impressed and so proud of you. And how fucking cool is all of this? Okay, first of all, I'm blushing furiously and trying really hard to not immediately contradict you because I'm really bad at taking compliments, but um, I am going to a little bit and say, you know, thank you. I'm really proud of my work on it too, but if it's the definitive Cyclops comic for you, that is that is not just on me. That is definitely the product of, of a lot of the collaboration on that. And that's something I want to emphasize. Like you're talking to me and I feel like I, I wrote the story and the dialogue, but so, so much of what makes it what it is is, is stuff that came from Chris and the Toms. And yeah, I definitely want to talk about the creative team because yeah, everybody did a great job on that. But before we do that, let's talk a little about what this comic is for anybody who might not have read it. So this is X-Men colon Marvel's Snapshots. So Marvel's Snapshots is a series of one-shots. What's the deal with Marvel's and then what's the deal with the much more current Marvel's Snapshots? Okay, so Marvel's... The original Marvels was a seminal Eisner Award-winning series by Kurt Busiek and Alex Ross, and it was about the rise of superheroes and the dawn of, Mar of the Marvel Universe's heroic age through the point of view of a photojournalist, sort of looking in on that from the outside um, and going through a lot of a lot of the major events and the major teams in that. Um, it didn't tend to be specific about years. Like one of one of the main conceits within Marvels and definitely within the um, a lot of the snapshots line is that when things aren't hinged to a specific historical event like World War II, their their temporal moment is 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 deliberately ambiguous. But um, ostensibly, and and with the, the the window dressing of the comic is 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 basically staged such that things are happening around the same time that they were published. Okay, so essentially the Silver Age; these are Silver Age stories, so they basically feel very sixties. Well, some of them are Silver Age because they go well into the Bronze Age and the Modern Age. And part of what the story of Marvels and then its sequel, Marvels Eye of the Camera, is, is about is, is this guy who, who's very much been witness to and occasionally inter interact with the massive cultural evolution that's taken place since the first superheroes surfaced. Because we talk a lot about how, you know, the tones of the comics and the things that happen in them change. But what Busick did in this was basically look at this, look at this and say, okay, how do you how do you write about this as these things change, as if the society underneath them is the cause of the change and not just you know publishing trends. And I love that as as a concept, and that's certainly something that some of the Marvel Snapshots line has really really done. So what's the deal with Marvel Snapshots? Because this is coming out now, whereas the original Marvels was at this point huh, a long time ago. Time is weird. So. Marvel Snapshots is a series of one-shots. The, the number one numbering is, is deceptive. I don't think that there's likely to be a number two of any of them. Focused on major characters or events in, in the early Marvel Universe through the perspective of non-central characters or non-superheroes. Non Marvel Snapshots X-Men is kind of... A, a a letter but not or spirit but not letter approach to that or letter but not spirit I'm not quite sure which I'd call it because it is exactly what I just described 
But the point of view character who's watching the unfolding of this heroic age is is specifically a character who's then going to grow up to himself become a superhero later. Right, but I guess it still fits the model because Scott Summers, who will be later Cyclops, at this point, he's just a kid who's had a terrible life. Right. So you're writing an X-Men comic. You've been podcasting about X-Men with me for some ridiculous amount of time. How did you get a gig actually contributing something to the official canonical Marvel Universe? So um, as as I th- think we might have talked about when he was on the show, I have known Kurt Busiek roughly forever. Like he literally the first comic that my name's in the credits of is one that he wrote um, from back in like 2006. And we've you know, stayed in touch and he's he's become a really good friend. And we've talked a lot about comics and continuity and X-Men and a lot of other stuff. And um, he DM'd me on Twitter and asked if I was interested in writing this. And I um, kind of ran down. I was I was at, at work and ran downstairs and, and had a long, challenging phone call because making private phone calls in the middle of, of, of Manhattan is hard. And um, then there was a lot of bureaucratic uh, wheel turning and a lot of other stuff. And I got to write this comic. <laughs> That is amazing. Like, one of the industry luminaries wants an X-Men comic to come out, wants a Cyclops comic to come out, and specifically says, you know who should write this? Jay Adidin. Um, Yeah, yeah, that was a whole thing. And and some of it was... was had to do with the framing in this particulars of the kind of, of sort of what, what Kurt was was looking at the story being, because he's, he's editing and and, 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 and curating the this line. Um, and... It was, yeah, it was, it was a lot of fun to do and really hard and really cool. <laughs> and yeah, I mean, it worked out super, super well. So you are a noted Cyclopsologist and Cyclops apologist. Before we go into the details of this comic, um, I'm going to be interspersing listener questions just as we go. So something very general from ya boy on Twitter. Cyclops is my favorite X-Man, but I often get pushback from friends because he's viewed as the resident wet blanket. I find it difficult to verbalize why Scott's so awesome. Can you do it for me? Um, Scott is awesome because he is the resident wet blanket in a team full of superheroes. That is a very concise explanation. I like it. There's an article, I don't recall who wrote it, um, but about the idea that 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 Wolverine is the character you sort of fantasize about being as you as as you're a kid and a teenager reading X Men and you grow up and Cyclops ends up being the character you identify with. Yeah, it's like a Han Solo and then Luke Skywalker thing for a lot of people. I mean, I as as a complete dork with absolutely no game but very nice pants, I identify closely with Han Solo. <laughs> so I part of why I like Cyclops is that he's not the the super charismatic superhero or and especially not the super charismatic superhero leader that characters like him are generally set up to be and that he's expected to be. He is very competent, but in a lot of ways, he is the out, he is a perpetual outsider on a team of outsiders. And he still leads the team, and he's really, really, really dedicated, and he works really hard, and he's mostly really dedicated to trying to do the right thing while very, very aware of his own fallibility in terms of that, which is a combination that I, I think is, is, is definitely worth loving in a character like that. Completely agree. Yeah, Cyclops is one of my favorites. I'm not as big a Cyclops fan as you are because, well, very few people in the world are, but I think you nailed it. I mean, as a wet blanket and uptight jerk, I, I you know, 
obviously I'm pretty personally attached here. <laughs> so we'll talk a ton about Cyclops and Cyclops as he appears in this comic, but you mentioned your collaborators earlier. So let's talk a little bit about Tom Riley, who does line art, Chris Halloran, who does colors, and Tom Orzakowski, who does letters. Okay, I'm going to go in a reverse order because... Uh, so, so people have asked a lot, you know, how do you feel about working on an X-Men book? It must be amazing to work on an X-Men book. It must be amazing to be working with, you know, that you've got an Alex Ross cover. And I'm just sitting here being like, Tom Warsakowski's lettering a thing I wrote. He's lettering an X-Men thing I wrote. Tom Warsakowski is doing that. The thing I wrote. Tom Warsakowski. X-Men. Tom Warsakowski, who managed to fit Claremont dialogue into speech bubbles. That is no mean feat. So that was, I think... I mean, everyone on this book was was amazing to work with. I'm going to gush about about Tom Riley and and Chris in just a minute, but in terms of feeling really like this is a real X Men book, I'm really doing this. This is really connected to this enormous mythos. Having Tom Orzakowski lettering it was 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 really amazing, and was I think kind of the point where it really hit me that uh, that I was I was actually you know becoming part of this this enormous behemoth of a thing that I I spent so long kind of enmeshed in but not actually you know directly connected to so freaking cool okay so tom tom riley and chris halloran are respectively the line artist and the color artist and they are oh my god they're so good they are amazing um something that that comes up a lot in conversations about comics um is the idea of writers as sort of the auteur and the people who are dictating everything um, or the idea of Marvel style where it's, it's just, you know, it's basically the, the artist is storyteller. And one of the things I love most about working in comics as a medium and the things that work best in comics as a medium are when you've got enough of a dialogic connection going on within the creative team that as a writer, you can convey intent without necessarily over over dictating details trust the artist to know what you're shooting for and trust them to be able to lay out a panel better than you are and get things back that you never could have narrated or designed like this comic is is so 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 much a sum of its parts i i so many of of the details that really stuck out to me and the ones that especially feel like like tonal beats and just sort of the 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 feel of it as it progresses are entirely from from Tom and Chris. Do you have any examples uh, from the line art or from the colors that you want to talk about, or would you rather just leave those for the uh, readers to discover as they read? I've got a few. Um, one of the pages that a couple of people who've, who've read the comics, a couple of reviewers um, who I've talked to have mentioned specifically is, um, gosh, I think it's like the page four maybe, but it's it's the first page where you see Scott in the present going through a day at the orphanage. The present being Scott's past, his, right? His his present, yeah. Because there's 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 a flashback, yeah, at one point, and um, so it's it's sort of what what sets the tone of the comic. And I I described sort of the general scenes that needed to be happening, and that Scott needed to be just sort of alienated from them and kind of separate. And Tom staged it staged it such that Scott is in the same position with the same expression on his face the same orientation in every panel and the background and setting moves around him and it's such a brilliant progression and people keep complimenting me on on that detail and that was entirely that's entirely tom 
Yes, so much of the pacing of a comic is the the penciler or the line artist, and I think the pacing is is certainly one of the strongest aspects of the many strong aspects of this issue. Yeah, and there were there were like there were things that I I was fiddly about and suggested early on, and there are there are some places where I went into a lot of detail, but in general, like once we you know been through a couple pages together because I, I ended up turning the script in, in in sections because of of where it was scheduling wise. It was, and I felt like I, I sort of had a good sense of, of how Tom was going to interpret things. Um, it became much easier to sort of know what I needed to script and I'd make sure that all of the things that absolutely needed to be conveyed in there were were listed in there and then basically stepped back because honestly, it would have been a much, much worse comic if I'd, I'd dictated more. There, there are a couple points to where, where I had, I had ridiculous high concept formalist ideas, um, that I, I gave to Tom and Chris going in that they, they did some really, really, really cool stuff with, um, which again, like, yeah. Oh God, it's so neat. So one panel I want to ask about that seems like it must've been a real collaboration between all of you is the one where Cyclops first learns about superheroes and goes to the library and just has all these different magazines and publications about them just spread out in front of him because there's so much detail there. What was that like to, work with Tom and Chris on. Okay, so that is actually one of the more detailedly scripted panels. Um, I basically wrote a whole list of potential books um, and magazine covers. I had a ton of reference. That that panel, more research went into that panel than the entire rest of the comic put together. Because um, I was doing things like going and checking incidents and seeing what would have happened or not happened, what characters would or wouldn't have been introduced at that time. But also, like um, if you look at the magazine covers, while there aren't specific, they're, they're among the only things that actually ground the comic in any nominal time period. Because I went and checked the cover treatments and logo designs from all of those magazines that would have been around in the early 60s. It's it's really cool. That panel is like a pa- a whole page of script. <laughs> oh man, I believe it. And talking about grounding it in a period of time, one thing I really liked about Chris Halloran's colors was the way that you know it's a flashback, so there's that there's that sort of uh, almost drab quality to it in, in shades of blue. But every time we see anything that's like superhero related, the colors get so vibrant, including Scott's powers barely starting to manifest, and I love that little detail. So it is not a flashback. Um, this is, I mean, it's it's set in the past, but the majority of the comic happens in in the present of the story. Uh, right. I just mean a flashback from like the modern Marvel universe. So there are two things that we decided at the beginning that were going to be specific visual indicators. Um, this is set during Scott's time at the orphanage, and there really wasn't space to go into what that meant or what you know the 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 incredibly intricate narrative setup around it. Like there's, there's not any of the sinister stuff. You know, you find out that Scott doesn't really trust his memories and feels disconnected, but he's basically, he's in a setup that's, that's engineered to make him feel that way, to disconnect him from his sense of reality, to disconnect him from the things around him. And what I wanted to do with that. So, so um, one, one of the things that we decided really early on was that Scott's world was going to be really drab really just just sort of sort of not necessarily flashbacky but just desaturated i mean was was basically going to be doing depression palette and the things that visually that really broke through were going to be superheroes and those were the points that that were where things were going to feel almost hyper real just incredibly vivid because those were the things that were really breaking through that 
Um, the other place that you see that is the panel borders. Like there are there are specific there are specific rules as the comic progresses about about um, the circumstances in which the grid gets broken and characters get to intersect with panel borders. And I'm not gonna gonna give that away, but it, and it's it's not entirely consistent, but it's close enough. Um, so those those were things we were really building visually from the start. So we've alluded to a lot of it, but if you had to describe what this issue is about in a few sentences, what's the elevator pitch if the elevator was going a few floors instead of just one? The okay, the I I, ha, I have the the elevators going one floor and it's a very fast pitch, which is teenage Scott Summers imprints on the idea of Reed Richards like a bit confused baby doc. <laughs> Um, the longer pitch is that it's basically, um, about identity and constructing and recognizing a sense of self by recognition rather than intuition. That you've got this character who feels really disconnected, who doesn't really have much of a sense of self, who just, just feels like there's something wrong around him and with him. And like nothing quite fits and nothing's quite, nothing's quite right and find something that reflects a missing piece that before was just completely inchoate and formless and obsesses about this detail and starts, you know, to gradually put together, you know, what's missing, what he wants. And in Scott's case, case really to, to claim the idea and the, the reality of agency as a result of that. In some ways, too, it's, it's also kind of a love letter to the things that superheroes mean to people who care about them. And to the experiences that I've had and the experiences that a lot of people I know have had in terms of, of finding fictional characters who, or, you know, or real people, but finding, finding those iconic representations that felt more real than our realities and, and turned out to be places where we were recognizing things we hadn't really known to name before. Yeah, there's this bit of narration by Scott that I actually wrote down. I loved it so much that I think speaks to that so well, as he says, they talk like the Fantastic Four are movie characters, but they're real people. And then shortly thereafter, it has to mean something. I need it to mean something. And I love that. It's about Scott caring so much about the Fantastic Four being real, even though people are just seeing them as as symbols, as news items, whatever. And yeah, us as comics readers, that. Like, this stuff matters. Yeah, and that's actually... So So the the thing in the structure and the idea that I, I mentioned is, is part of why... You asked, you know, why why Kurt had come to me in the beginning, and part of part of that um, is that it was his idea to to do this story with with the the framing with with Cyclops, you know, and the the rise of superheroes. Like he hadn't, I, I was the one who who got really obsessed with the idea of doing it with the Fantastic Four for some very specific reasons, but um, he was was sort of looking at 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 the early stuff with Cyclops and the idea of of his claiming agency and, 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 you know, this, this experience is really parallel to the experience of, of growing up trends and not necessarily recognizing that in yourself early on, like coming to a more gradual realization later and making the complex decision to actually step forward and act on it. Um, so this is, this is very much, very specifically a trans story. Um, it's, 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 the Cyclops in it can be trans if you need them to be. I, I don't think Marvel will will you know agree to that, but but very pointedly, there's no evidence in it that he's not. <laughs> and you know, you are the writer, so I feel like your your take on this is an especially valid one. 
Yes and no. I, I, I've been thinking about that. And that's something I've tried to be really careful going into this about, because this is one comic in a much, much larger span of comics with a lot of self-contradictory details. The larger span, this doesn't have self-contradictory details. Uh, contradictory details, um, but in a universe and with characters who I don't own. Like ultimately, I can say how I set out to write Scott. Scott, I can say what I intended about Scott, but I'm not the person who can say this is officially what Scott is. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, and I mean that's something that's that's something that I know we got a question about here, and uh, that I answered on on my personal Tumblr either or earlier too, which is someone asked if this if, if based on this comic if. And the fact that I wrote it, if that means that Scott is canonically autistic, because I am, and I've talked about that being a point of identification. Um, and the answer is basically the disclaimers that, you know, I that's something that's not explicitly said in this comic. I don't think it should be explicitly said, because I don't think it would be. I don't think it would make sense for it to be in the, the narrative. Um, it's a shared universe thing. I don't have control over how other writers or editors or Marvel in general is going to approach that. The Scott that I wrote in this comic is autistic. Yeah, and I think that um, that comes through really well. And as a non-autistic person, it was, I don't know, it's just a cool way, as comics so often are, as fiction so often is, to gain insight into an experience other than your own. And you did it just so, so deftly. <laughs> and I should say, too, that this is, this is, this is, you know, one version of that. This is, this is one of those frustrating, this is not, you know, the autistic superhero comic because there's no more the autistic character experience and representation than there is the non-autistic character experience and representation. I mean, I think y'all are pretty homogenous, but you know, I've heard <laughs> otherwise. Um, well, let's go back a little bit to the part about the Fantastic Four. You were talking about Cyclops and printing on them. So later in Scott's timeline, you know, in the quote, more modern comics that, that we've read, Scott and the FF have interacted a number of times. This, I guess, would be not their first meeting, but Scott's first uh, direct experience of the FF. Did you draw on any of the previously published stories that are out there, like X-Men Fantastic Four or whatever, as research? So I read them all. And I read a ton, 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 ton of, of Silver Age Fantastic Four, which was a lot of fun. And a lot of other surrounding material. I did a lot of... I, one of the amazing things about working with Kurt Busiek is the ways that we are obsessed about X-Men continuity and the things that we can just recall off the bat. He can do that for the whole Marvel universe and most of the DC universe. And it's it's so cool. I mean, I, I, I want to go back actually a step because I was talking about collaborators. And one of the amazing things about working with Kurt, like he's a fantastic writer. He's a fantastic editor. Reading his notes, arguing with him over the points that I felt like were sticking points, going back and forth with that was basically getting to have a really extended, really amazing masterclass in, in comics writing and in a, to a fair extent in, in comics editing. But also, it was really amazing working with an editor who comes into continuity and finds, or, or comes into comics and finds joy in points that overlap a lot with the ones where I do, specifically with, you know, for whom the stories are priority and the stories and the humanity of them and the, you know, the narrative is important but the continuity is fun and critical and as much just a source of enjoyment and joy in there too. And it was, Oh God, it was so cool. That sounds amazing. And along those lines, um, one of our listeners, David had a question um, about prepping and continuity. Mm -hmm. How much research did you do for this issue? And how was that process different from what you do for the podcast? So I did a shit ton of research for this issue and the process was very different from the podcast because one of one of the thing you know with the podcast 
what we're doing largely is closer is 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 critical analysis. It's it's closer to an academic critical take on on the work. So we're talking about the comics as comics, as as artifacts made by people that exist in our universe. When you're writing the comics, you're you're dealing with the stories, story events, as things that take place, you know, in the universe where you're telling a story. And one of the challenges with that, or not challenges, I'm going to get to that in a sec, with Cyclops' origin specifically, is that it is, as we mentioned in the cold open, riddled with contradictions. There are no two versions of Cyclops' childhood, and especially his time at the orphanage, that are exactly alike. And a lot of them are just blatantly mutually contradictory. And... I thought a lot about that going in. You know, Kurt and I talked a lot about that going in, and just the fact that it is going to be, it is not possible to write a single comic whose events don't contradict anything in at least one other official canonical 616 comic set here. I actually, so I have a no prize explanation for it, which is something that I kept in mind going into this and which freed me from a lot of those continuity constraints. And that is that this is an era where Scott's memory is being and and perceptions are being actively screwed with continually. Not only does he have complications from a traumatic brain injury, this is also a thing I obsess. I, I did a bunch of obsessive research um, going into this on specifically the effects of of childhood traumatic brain injuries on adolescent development and stuff like that. <laughs> because I'm me, and it's good to be precise about these kinds of things. <laughs> but also, you know, he's got sinister deliberately and aggressively and continually gaslighting him and who set up this entire laboratory environment set up to do that. And then later on, Xavier is going to come in and mess further with those memories. So it's entirely reasonable to assume that Scott, Scott's own memories of this time are absolutely paradoxical and self-contradictory, that that's what we're seeing when we're seeing those continuity contradictions. And I love that all of the bits that allude to Sinister that are in this issue are so ambiguous. And you almost question, wait, is that Sinister related? Like, we see this terrifying medical nightmare that's going on, but is that a nightmare? Is that a memory? We don't know. We have a jerk kid named Nathan at the orphanage. Oh, that's Sinister. That's that's straight that's straight up Nate at the orphanage. And that's actually one of the points where we deliberately made a break from the most common representation because the place where you see him at the orphanage most most frequently is in in a couple of issues of classic X-Men in the backup stories. And he's blonde in those. And he's been shown as having dark hair in at least one other version of it. And we talked about it and went with the dark haired version because we didn't want it to be possible to mix him up with Alex at a glance. And also honestly. Sinister is a schemer, but I don't know that subtlety is necessarily actually a skill that Sinister possesses. So I feel like even jerk kid version of Sinister would still have some of the visual affectations. Honestly, I'm kind of surprised he doesn't have a little red diamond on his forehead that he <laughs> will not admit is there. I mean, I, I, I assume he just has some very strategically placed acne, maybe. Oh, okay. Just diamond-shaped acne. Or something. So we're talking about continuity. We're talking about how this fits. And listener Joe Lestowski asked, given that X-Men ages usually float in a nebulous 20 to 30-year-old range, did your choice of which decade to place this in inform any of your writing? Young Scott in the 60s might be very different than Young Scott in the 90s. That is absolutely true. And one of the things that you might notice going into this is that it's set in an absolutely nebulous time period. 
And I could get away with that for a few reasons. One of them is, again, the setting of the orphanage, which is this entirely artificial setting. Even if you put it in the year the comics had come out, even if you put it, you know, where it would, if you assume that the X-Men had their first adventure in 1963, so this would have taken place in 1961 or so, there were not ple- there were not orphanages in the United States at that point, or at least they had been largely phased out decades before. Um, for instance, like that was that was a term that had fallen out of popularity decades earlier, and an institutional structure that that was was largely gone at that point. Um, so, the orphanage is a construct. A lot of Scott's life is a construct, and a lot of it's a kind of anachronistic construct because it's made by being made by a super weird ass Victorian mad scientist. Now. <laughs> So there's that. But one of the things, actually, one of the things that Tom and I talked a lot about in this was a way to keep it temporally ambiguous, to have to have a story whose visual markers didn't lock in an era. It can take place in 1961 or 62. You can put it there. It definitely takes place a year or so, you know, or a couple of years before the first X-Men adventure. Like the the time differential between the launch of Fantastic Four and the launch of X-Men is still there. But you can really drop it anywhere. And there, the one place where I remember going into a lot of detail about this was actually the first conversation that I had with Tom when he came on the book. He was drawing the variant cover. And there was this long email thread about whether Scott should be wearing plaid pants on it. And <laughs> <laughs> first of all, I've never felt more professionally qualified for a conversation in my life. But we decided against it. We decided against it specifically because that dates him in a much, much more specific way than we really wanted to. I, I never thought of plaid pants as so limiting, but yeah, you're totally right. That would make it feel inherently old timey. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and that's that's something that's something too that 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 yeah, that's that's a whole 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 other mess of things. But it's it's definitely set the time that the Fantastic Four start doing their thing and that much earlier than the X-Men start doing their thing. And other than that, I'm not at liberty to say the only things that lock it into a specific time period at all are those magazine cover designs. And considering that it takes place in a universe other than ours, those aren't necessarily there. Um, when I started working on it, I was thinking, oh, it's set in 1961, 1962. And I had a lot more space race specific stuff in there that ended up um, getting cut out specifically in the name of that time agnosticism, which I'm a little sad about because, man, it would have been fun to work like that other special interest in it. But so it goes. There's still a rocket ship in it. So you mentioned special interests, and that actually brings up a question I was hoping to ask. So talking less about continuity and more about just Cyclops as a person, as a young person in this comic... He's defined in large part by being different. He's got brain damage. He knows that. His mutant power is just barely starting to manifest, and he assumes that's just part of the brain damage. And you mentioned earlier you'd written him as autistic, including having things like special interests, one of which turns out to be superheroes in general, and the Fantastic Four in particular. So how do you go into deciding how to handle that? Because I know on the podcast we've talked a great deal about the mutant metaphor and how you kind of need intersectionality to make it work effectively and to make it, you know, not just pave over actual diversity. What was your approach in combining those things? I mean, look, there is nothing in my version of Cyclops that didn't arguably exist before I wrote him, that didn't arguably exist in other versions. I think Dennis Hopeless in All New X-Men has been as explicit as I have in his writing in terms of, of neurodivergent coding. I don't know if it was intentional, but I think it's definitely there. And I think in large part, this is a question of of voices and perception. That that the things that I'm going to key on, key in on, the details I'm going to recognize, 
the dots I'm going to connect are going to be different than the dots you connect because I'm coming from a different perspective and I'm recognizing different things. And one of the beauties of fictional characters is they're open to that kind of interpretation. I mean, this is, this is, you know, this is canonical Scott, but canonical Scott is a very wide and again, inherently self-contradictory range. Yeah, that makes a great deal of sense. And I, I don't know, at the same time, this feels like, this feels like a Scott built of all the bits and pieces from so very much of continuity. And, and I love that. And I also love that it feels like not just a definitive Cyclops story, but in some ways a definitive X-Men story. This is an issue where part of Scott's journey is learning that what makes him different, what makes him feel like an outsider and a freak, is actually the most special thing about him, or one of the most special things about him, and that's what he can do to be part of the world in the way he wants to. And that's such an X-Men story. Well, and that's not his powers, specifically. Exactly. That's his, it's his personality. It's his identity. It's, it's who he is. And that's what he's able to use to sort of become a more realized version of who he is. And I love that. That's such an X-Men story. Yes and no. Because it's also very deliberately a story that's not about Scott's relationship to the X-Men. Because pretty much, like most Cyclops stories, and a lot of what drives him, and a lot of what, what explicitly... Um, you know, propels him and what he's concerned about on page is is X-Men focused. A lot of it has to do with Xavier. A lot of it has to do with the X-Men. This is this is for the most part deliberately entirely pre-Xavier. And part of the idea and part of what I wanted to do is, you know, establish those things and establish some critical critical aspects of Scott as Scott, as things that weren't necessarily responsive and weren't necessarily cultivated by Xavier. Totally. That makes a lot of sense. And I think that's important to do because Cyclops is a character that handled badly, say, okay, the animated series was wonderful, the dearly departed voice actor for Cyclops in the animated series was wonderful, but I'm going to say that version of Cyclops is not many people's favorite version of the character. I think because he exists so much in response to other characters, he's not as as outwardly defined. And with this, I think you manage to, with a lot of nuance and specificity, help us understand who Scott Summers is. Although ironically, I think one of the better points of characterization for him in that series involves going back to the orphanage. Uh, that's true. That was a pretty good episode. Definitely better than the one where he got stuck in the desert and fought that sun guy. That was weird. <laughs> yeah, that was a thing. Um, man. Cyclops, Cyclops is a character who I feel like hasn't fared very well in a lot of solo series. I, I, I really hate the first one, the limited, the Brian, uh, I think Brian Vaughn written Cyclops miniseries. Like, I, I just, oh God, I cannot stand it. Um, and I, I love the, I love the, the, the kid, the teenage Cyclops one. I mean, that's, that's actually, I should say, you know, this, this Cyclops, I mentioned canonical versions, owes a huge amount to the way, you know, the Greg Rucka, um, version of it of him the Dennis hopeless version of him and also specifically like the the largest points of reference are definitely uh classic x-men 41 and 42 i was also reminded a great deal of one of the x-men first class uh stories by i believe jeff parker the cyclops one the bicycle thief was it yes yes uh which is a story i love and which is a story that that features actually a a a um the thing whose secret origin this this comic is. So this is not Cyclops's origin story, but it is the secret origin story of his beloved and battered copy of The Art of War, which has shown up over the years in a ton of comics, and it's just a thing that keeps turning up. It's sort of the detail and the prop that people tend to associate with Cyclops. You know, Cable has one later. I'd like to think it's the same one. 
And yeah, so this, this is its official origin story. So talking about details, um, we had a couple of questions from Rice Black Lives Matter Indigo and from Still at UCLA. They were both asking about whether there was anything you wanted to fit in but had to be trimmed out, be it characters, cameos, whatever. So there were a couple of scenes that I really liked that I ended up pulling and there were a couple of things that I was really, really agonizing over whether to include and decided not to. The first one, um, so originally in it, there's there's the scene pretty early on um, after the Fantastic Four launch when, when everyone's obsessed with them, when a bunch of kids are playing Fantastic Four on the playground, and it's part of what is and it, it was the the setup for the for a playground scene in the comic, but it was it was longer originally, and it involved some kids playing Fantastic Four and Scott coming up and just sort of being like, oh, you know, can I? And they're the younger kids, and they're like, yeah, you can be the invisible girl, go away. Um, Oh, hard. And then Scott being really offended on behalf of Sue Storm because she's arguably got the most useful superpower and sitting down and strategizing, being like, no, this is how she could have fucking fixed it. And not really telling them that, but knowing that. <laughs> um, so so there was that. The other the other two things I, I mentioned classic X-Men 41 and, and 42. And I really agonized over whether to try to touch on um a couple specific things from those, uh, specifically Toby and the Bogart. So Toby is a kid who bullies Scott and who sinister goads and mind controls into killing himself. Oh, I'd forgotten about that story. Yeah, yeah. And um, and the Bogarts are a couple who who are planning to adopt him, who again, sinister murders. <laughs> and um <laughs> And I ended up deciding not to go with those because that's not this is this is not a story. And that, that's something that that again, you know, going back to Kurt, like one of the things that he ended up reminding me a lot of is this is not the Scott's time in Sinister's Orphanage story. This is a story of specific thing. The rest of those details aren't necessarily there. So this is this is the story that's kind of set between the scenes of the horror movie that is Scott's life at the orphanage. Yeah, it it doesn't seem fun. And so by contrast, his discovery of superheroes and his just focusing on that world as a way to maybe make the world make sense. It just seems that much brighter, that much more important, that much more just loud and alive. Yeah. And it's not just that it's superheroes. It has to be the fantastic four. Um, and that was something that, that even when, when, you know, the original concept that Kurt, Kurt pitched to me was, it's Cyclops in the orphanage reacting to superheroes. And it's like, okay, yes, it's the fantastic four because they have the same initial origin story. Four people strap into a cockpit. There's a flash of light. Something goes horribly wrong. And the Fantastic Four come out superheroes. And Scott comes out with no memory, with traumatic brain injury, and into these horrible circumstances. The Fantastic Four are also a team that are specifically about and represent the thing that he's kind of desperately reaching for at the orphanage, which is family. Like... To what extent Cyclops has an ongoing arc and an ongoing quest in the X-Men beyond the whole doing the right thing, helping people thing, it's about constructing family. Like that's that is a concept that's always been incredibly appealing to him and incredibly important to him. And that he'll drop everything for and that he'll he'll abandon a lot of things for. There's a great scene that we're gonna get to eventually on the show that involves um Scott and Alex talking and and Alex being like, I'm sorry, I you know pushed you out of a plane to your apparent death. And Scott's like, yeah, it's okay. I assume you had a good reason. 
And that's 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 some stuff we're going to get to later. It's the, I should say in terms of throwing people out of planes because Cyclops falls out of a lot of planes. This isn't like the origin story plane. This is later on when Alex is is ostensibly being a supervillain, but it's a larger, very incoherent plotline. Oh boy, that whole thing. That whole thing. But yeah, and I mean, I, there's 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 also a, a great Cable moment from again, I think from Dennis Hopeless and Cable and X Force, where. Scott, you know, goes and tracks down Cable, who's who's and who's doing something extremely illegal. And Cable says, you know, I thought you were here to stop me. And Scott's like, you're my kid. I came to help make sure you were OK and maybe help you steal a spaceship. And that actually brings up a listener question I really liked. Um, Kat asked, what sort of influence does this story have, if any, on adult Scott as he tries to navigate being a parent to children at different stages of life and how he sees his role as a caregiver in general? None whatsoever. I think those are aspects of Scott that are absolutely ingrained from the start, that are rec- retroactively ingrained from before the start and has been by a lot of people. Um, Mark Wade's champions, I think, I think most recently really, really delved into that. But that's, that's just there. That's Scott stuff. That's not what the story is about. I mean, that stuff is there, but it's not stuff that really has a lot of bearing on what he's doing, except to an extent, the extent to which the Fantastic Four become intrinsically and reflexively important to him because they're this they're this you know intensely familial unit so let's stay on the topic of kind of the legacy or retconned legacy (laughs) or or whatever of what you're doing arvin batista had a cool question as a screenwriter part of the goal is to write a story that gives the protagonist an emotional arc one that defines them and also leaves them somewhere different from where they began for someone writing their dream character i'd assume it's even more so how do you balance that with knowing that the character will obviously be picked up and continued by other writers after you? So I got to say, this is exactly why Cyclops was not my dream character to write. He <laughs> because is... then you had to let go. <laughs> yeah, I mean, because the points of identification for me and the things I care about with Cyclops are things that are pretty personal. Because I know that I'm someone prone to a lot of privacy and possessiveness when it comes to things I'm emotionally connected to and a lot of black and white thinking around that. Like, I have several X-Men things that I would love to pitch and I would love to write, and none of them are actually Cyclops-centric. That's just not really a place I'd particularly considered going because it's something that I had seen as too close to home. Um, And honestly, I I don't think it's a a thing I would have considered if Kurt hadn't approached me with it. I'm really glad he did. But if this is a dream project, it's definitely more in the category of anxiety dream. So... (laughs) Which I guess is, 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 you know, a very Cyclops thing. So. I, mean, I hope this anxiety <laughs> dream involved less like medical experimentation. Yeah, I mean, I, I, oh God, I've been having more like specifically, I can tell what fiction I've been reading based on this dream, dreams this last week than like in the last 10 years put together and also been wildly insomniac. So that's a whole other space my brain's in right now. It's not X-Men space. Um, but, <laughs> but going back, so. Arvin, I guess I guess the key to this is is choosing scope. So I cannot alter the versions of Cyclops that other people have written. I there there are events that are set. I, I guess you can think of this. You can, oh here here you go. This is this is this is writing a story using time travel ethics. Certain things are going to happen at certain times, and I can't change those things. 
what I can do is choose how closely related the story I want to tell is those things, and what constitutes a complete story within its context. This is not the complete story of Scott Summers, of Cyclops, of his evolution as a character, but this is a complete story, you know, within its own scope. So, I mean, I guess that's, that's, I mean, that's, that's the case with anything, I think. That's, that's the case with any story that's not, if, if you're not Tolkien and you're not going to write a fucking Silmarillion and 700 volumes of, of background material, and I'm just being mean to Tolkien now, um, <laughs> so I'll stop doing that. But no story, no story is the whole story. No story covers every possible aspect and permutation of everything. I mean, I whether you're you're Victor Hugo or or Chris Claremont, there's going to be a lot left incomplete. There's going to be a lot of blank spaces around the edges, and that's part of part of the beauty of those kind of shared universes that that there are are always going to be those spaces to move through. So the trick there is just finding those spaces, choosing where you want to occupy, and finding a story whose shape fits within them. And I love that this is now a part of Scott Summers' story, and the character's portrayal is is the better for it. In theory. So I think this is technically 616, but I'm not actually entirely sure. I mean, I'm okay with it being 616. I feel like we get some say. We're, we have a big X-Men podcast. Yeah, but it's within a continuity that previously existed, and what I'm going on is is the Marvel Wiki, which is a fan-based thing, so I, I can double-check, but I, I'm, I am, in fact, not dead certain whether or not this is 616. It's 616 compatible, at least. <laughs> you can plug it in. You know, I mean, it's modular. It's, it's like Ikea furniture. Yeah, it's, it's, it's got versatile integrations. <laughs> okay, so you mentioned that Cyclops was not exactly your dream project initially for reasons you, you went into in, in detail, but what projects would you want to do? Uh, Javi Silva asked, if you had to write another X-Universe character for Marvel Snapshots or another one-shot, who would you choose and why? Okay, if it had to be an X character, there are a couple I thought of, and they would probably be in in respective order of preference, Havoc, Alex Summers specifically, and Jean Grey. Okay, cool. Those are not the snapshots that I would pitch if I got to pitch any snapshot, though. I would actually go outside the X universe for that. I would love to write Thor and Loki stories in this setting, and specifically Loki. And having listened to the audiobook version of Thor Metal Gods, you write a very good Thor and a fucking perfect Loki. I would read the hell out of that. But Loki also specifically interacts with with the idea of myth and cultural myth and narrative in ways that make him a really interesting character to insert into the Marvel's framework. That's a really good point. I mean, we've seen some, I don't want to say fourth wall breaking stuff with Loki exactly recently, but certainly an acknowledgement that he knows he is a story, that he knows he both is and is in a story. I would argue that if any of the Marvel Norse gods have not figured that out by this point, they are extraordinarily slow on the uptake. I mean, canonically, in Norse mythology, Thor is extraordinarily slow on the uptake. Yeah, but Marvel Thor actually isn't so much. Marvel Thor is pretty bright and tends to play himself as dense for effect, but he's also a character who's tied specifically or who comes off as 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 much less savvy than he is because he's a character who is optimized for a very specific narrative format. He's a character whose skills and whose perception of the world are very specific to epic heroism. Yeah, 
completely agree. You you don't have to tell this Thor fan twice. You, I, I think you nailed it. Yeah, I, I have strong feelings about that one. <laughs> Different <laughs> angle, but yeah, yeah. And I mean, I, I obviously like. I, I feel like your your introductory points to Thor are seminal to my take on Thor, and so this this full circles. I mean, I feel like in an, an ideal universe, we would we this this would be a, a a duology, and we'd get to co-write them. But I mean, uh, yeah, okay, okay. I'm open to this. Uh, maybe Marvel. I have no writing experience. What do you say? Jay vouches for me. He knows a lot about Thor. <laughs> he does indeed. I'm a very good editor. So I feel like we've covered about as much of the comic as we can without going into massive spoiler space. So do you feel ready for a couple of perhaps uh, less directly relevant questions, just more about Cyclops in general? Exceptionally so. Okay, then Friendly Neighborhood Mexican Kami asks, what is your favorite Scott slash Cyclops outfit? I have said this before, and the answer has not changed. It is his asymmetrical X-Factor Forever jacket. Oh, those looks are so, so good. Uh, if you had to pick a second favorite, do you have one of those? Oh, man. <laughs> I don't know if I thought about it in that degree of detail, because that's such a clear standout. I have a massive soft spot for the modular plaid suit. <laughs> it's From not technically it's, yeah it's not technically a cyclops outfit but there's there's this plaid suit that shows up in silver age x-men which because of coloring errors it appears that a number of the x-men share i mean they they might except for beast all the male x-men are kind of the same size so actually one of the things i do really love about a lot of accidental like and in no prizey ways is is the fact that scott when left to his own devices basically dresses like a toddler we did see him in that vest, turtleneck, plaid, orange, and red monstrosity in a recent issue we talked about. Okay, so he is function. I, I have thought way too much about this, and I thought way too much about this long before the podcast existed, actually. Um, a, a friend and I have, like, hours and hours of chat of, of like, you know, this is, of, 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 of coming up with complex canonical reasons that justify how badly Cyclops dresses. Uh, which have a lot of complex relationships to both both disability and co functional colorblindness, but also to the concept of class performance and how that relates to specific angles of class anxiety and what it means to come out from his background and get yanked into Xavier's world. I'm not going to go into that in horrific detail now because that has nothing to do with this comic, but it is a thing I have thought way too much about. Okay, so as far as looks, um, oh God, I... I realize that this is a cop-out answer. I love the original X-Men costumes. They're just the yellow and black, the very, very simple ones. I think they're fantastic. That's not a Cyclops-specific look, but it's one I really like. They're iconic. And honestly, of the original X-Men, like when I think back to that black and yellow look, Cyclops is the character that I just gravitate toward. Yeah, the version of it that I go to in my head is definitely the, the drawn by Jamie McKelvey in, in X-Men Season 1 version. But yeah. Sweet. Uh, along those lines, I've been to your apartment. I've seen that you have a lot of Cyclops stuff. I do. Do you have a favorite uh, model or action figure of the many, many that I've seen at your place? I do. And I'm so bummed that I'm not there right now because it's it's the X-Factor Cyclops that talks. Oh, is that the one in the blue and white costume? Yes. And he says only very boring things and I love him very much. Perfect. So, yeah, Jay, congratulations again on getting your first X-Men comic published and also on having it be freaking great. Like, good work, dude. I am so, so happy about this, and you did a great job.
thank you. And if I got to do a great job on this, it's because I got to do a great job with the collaboration and input and involvement and really critical involvement of a whole lot of amazing, amazing people and creators and editors, you know, Kurt and the Toms and Chris and Darren, who was officially our editor and just, yeah, everyone, everyone who worked on this book was amazing and let me do ridiculous nonsense that I never expected to get away with. So (laughs) thank you. That was fun. (laughs) Stressful, but fun. Man, I believe it. So yeah, X-Men Marvel Snapshots number one is in comic stores right now. And, um, If you've gotten this far in the episode and you're not really bored, I suspect you would like it very much. We are an entirely listener-supported podcast, and some of those tiers of support come with acknowledgement on the show from a range of fictional characters and concepts. And after a lot of deliberation of what would make sense to pair with this episode, the mic today goes to none other than the endlessly mutable bondage viking Eric the Red. So Scott Summers has taken his first step on his road to embodying the most important role of his life. The boy is now on the path to dressing up like a bondage viking and calling himself Eric the Red to confuse Magneto. But what if Eric the Red was not merely a disguise, whether for Summers, for the Shi'ar agent Devon Shikari, or for Magneto himself. What if I was, in fact, Matt Lazowitz, devious, muscular, and enamored of helmets and leather straps? And what then if Matt Lazowitz was himself another disguise, and I, Eric the Red, was in reality? Sam Willis. What then, Summers? Would you still don that leathern harness and horned helm if you knew you were merely emulating an actual bondage viking? Because you totally should. This outfit is, like, super comfortable. It's gonna be trendy as hell pretty soon. For serious. So is probably Eric the Red the new probably a Summers brother? I think it may be. And with that, Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in New Fairfield, Connecticut, an exile from Forest Hills, New York, and Portland, Oregon, and produced by Matt Hunter, who also arranged our theme music. You can find more of Matt's work at moon-talk.bandcamp.com, and you can buy X-Men Marvel's Snapshots Number 1, written by me and drawn by... Tom Riley with colors by Chris O'Halloran and letters by Tom Orzakowski in comic shops everywhere and also probably on the internet. And you should totally buy it through legitimate avenues because um, I think I get royalties. I don't actually know. I should probably look that up. Yeah, probably. New episodes of our show come out most Sundays on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for additional content, including visual companions to every episode. Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. Next week, we'll be back with Excalibur as it launches into the Dream Nails trilogy. And the secret origins of Pete Wisdom. Ugh, that guy. That guy. I love Pete Wisdom. Pete Wisdom.